Please take your copy of God's Word and turn with me to Matthew chapter 4. This morning we'll be looking again at Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 through 11, but with a specific emphasis on uh, verses 5, 6, and 7 of the Lord's temptation by the devil. Let's hear the word of the Lord now, Matthew chapter 4, 1 through 11. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city. And set him upon the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Then Jesus said to him, Again it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again the devil took him to a very high mountain. And showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of God abides forever. Let's pray. Father, again we ask, please add to the reading of your word, which we do as an act of worship, and especially to the preaching, your blessing. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. When when a young man uh, develops an affection for a young woman, he doesn't necessarily have to be young. Uh, This young man undergoes an instant change. Suddenly, he is well-mannered and well-groomed. Even though he might have failed English class, he can write an eight-page poem in four and a half minutes. His new affection results in a new behavior, do you see? And this is what happens to you and me when we're born again. We develop a new affection. This new affection in the young man not only enables him to do certain things that he never would have thought of doing before, but he gets rid of things that he never would have been able to get rid of before. He has clean fingernails, washes behind his ears. Thomas Chalmers called this the expulsive power of a new affection. What the Holy Spirit does in a man who's born again is he, he doesn't just able, enable him to clean up a few things, but he, he does something powerful within a man. He causes that man to love something new. You see, this is what Chalmers was saying. 
When we become Christians, we don't, this is not just asking a man to stop liking certain things, to stop loving certain, to, to stop loving certain things, to walk around in misery because he can't go to those same old haunts that he did before. But his, his affection for the things of the world is replaced with a powerful new affection. You know what that new affection is? Is a person. It is the person of Jesus Christ. This is the challenge of legalism, isn't it? Legalism is the pursuit of obedience so that I might gain the Lord's favor. You will never do that. Christ, you notice in our text, is obeying the Lord in light of the Father's favor. As an act of worship to the Lord, Christ's obedience to God and His resistance to temptation were not to gain God's favor, but to reciprocate it. But He's also acting as our champion. We're looking at Him, saying, can you do it? Can you do it in my place? Can you do what I cannot? And so you think about this. When we, are, when we teach children or grandchildren, we teach them to obey the Lord. The idea is not what we're teaching them to do is to obey Him out of love for Him. I want you to love the Lord, to be compelled to obey Him. Not just me. But if you don't do it out of love, do it out of hatred for a spanking. And so we're learning, as we look at Christ's temptation, again, not a method, not a, a means of overcoming it, just if I put these proper steps in place, I will defeat the devil. But we're learning that overcoming temptation is a matter of having the right heart. We see in the second temptation this morning that one of the things that Satan is going to tempt you to do is to use God's love and grace as a motivation, is to use those things presumptively as an excuse for doing things that you ought not do. And Christ shows us that we resist the devil through faithful application of God's word. Satan will tempt you to use God's love and grace presumptively. But you will overcome him by faithfully applying his word. Notice as we look at the text, there's a change of location. The devil, in verse 5, took the Lord up and took him to the holy city. There's, there have been questions, is this a vision that he causes the Lord to have? Does he take him physically? I think... We can't deny that he's transported some way by maybe catching him up. We, we don't know. The, the Bible doesn't answer. Or did they walk together to the temple? We don't know. But he's gone from the place of loneliness into the city. And they set him there looking down on the holy city of Jerusalem. Of the people coming in and out of the temple. Standing there. In the first... Temptation, we saw that Jesus 
Our Lord demonstrated His love for doing the Father's will. It was His food. The chief desire of His life was to obey the Father. It was greater than His desire for any other thing. Even the appetite of His stomach. In the second temptation, He will be tested in His willingness to throw His life away flippantly. First of all, notice that Satan will tempt you to use God's love and grace presumptively. What do I mean by that? Well, Satan will tempt you to to say, well, God's gracious. God will forgive me. You see, therefore, I can engage in certain things because I know that He's a gracious Father. I know He's a loving Father. And I can use those things to excuse certain activities and behaviors. And this is exactly what He does to Christ in the second temptation. Notice the challenge. Again, He says in verse 6, If you are the Son of God... For the second time in a row, he's used that phrase. If you are the Son of God, you're, you're going to do certain things. We're, we're looking for proof here from you that you are the Son of God. Satan is going after Jesus' personal assurance of his sonship. First, he said, demonstrate your power. I mean, if you're the Son of God, certainly you can turn these rocks into bread... He's going to turn water into wine. I mean, you're hungry. And you've got the power. You're a supernatural being. Now, demonstrate God's protection. I mean, aren't you? If you're a true son, the Father's going to protect you, isn't He? Isn't that what we find in the Word of God? Is that God is a protecting Father? Well, let's see it. Let's see him protect you. Notice the proof that he's asking for again in verse 6. If you are the Son of God, then throw yourself down. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. If you're the Son of God, prove it in this way. Let's see the Father protect you. I want to see you put your faith in all of those promises that God has made concerning His people. And so here, on the height of the temple, having been taken out of the loneliness of the wilderness into a populated city, to the place of many witnesses, listen, both men and angels can look up and see this event that is about to take place. Christ has the opportunity to prove His sonship before all. There's an element of ego in this temptation, isn't there? Many of us want to wear the shirt of a winning team. We want our team to be the national champions so that the next day I can go to Academy Sports and get my national championship t-shirt because that shows what? I have a share in that glory. I contributed nothing, but I have a share in that glory. 
I root for the right team. I'm smart. And you can sense the pull then that this might have. If you are the son of God, if you bear that title, jump off. Calvin, commenting here, says that the design of Satan was to induce Christ to make a trial or a test of his divinity and to rise up in foolish and wicked rashness against God. Use your power flippantly. And he goes on, notice what he does. He, he enhances the entitlement by quoting Scripture. Oh, he's very pious. He quoted from Psalm chapter 91, a favorite of ours. I read it often when I go to hospitals or nursing homes to remind those who are there, even though they're weak in body, of the Lord's promise to protect His people, that, that those who say of the Lord that, that He is their stronghold, that He is their shelter, He promises protection. And the devil knows this. Oh, he memorizes Scripture too. Did you know that? This is one reason, if you take something away, to say that quoting a verse is not sufficient to overcome temptation. We read the Scriptures, we ingest the Scriptures, we digest the Scriptures, we, we take in God's Word so that we might produce its promises in our lives, lives remind ourselves in them and walk worthy of Christ. It is a complete knowledge of Scripture that maintains a balance. If you're memorizing Scripture just one off here and there, then the, there's always the possibility that error is going to creep in, that you misunderstood it. And so we're always comparing Scripture to Scripture. What is the nature of this temptation, though? What do we find? Satan is tempting Christ, the Son of God, to put the promise of God to the test. Notice in Psalm 91, if we go back over there, there's, there's no place in Psalm 91 that it says, if you jump off the temple, God will protect you. Psalm 91 is assuring the Christian of God's abiding protection. He does watch over His children. He cares very much, very intimately about your well-being. But He makes no promise to protect you against foolish behavior. You should see, in other words, God's overarching protection in your life, and we're not always looking for some miraculous intervention of God. Hey, this is a fatal blunder of Christians in our day. You should see it as no less the work of God when radiation removes a tumor than when it miraculously disappears. Both are His work. Works of His providence. This is the Christian perspective. But you see that some ministers in doing exactly what Satan is doing here, 
entice Christians to become covetous people? Don't you know that the Lord owns a, the cattle on a thousand hills? That can be yours. Sow your seed. Speak your word. They are not standing for Christ. They are standing against Him. They use these men twist the Scriptures just as Satan did to support your sinful lust for gain. You and I do the same thing. Every time we twist God's promises of grace to justify yet one more indulgence of the flesh. Should we go on sinning? Let's go on sinning. God is a gracious God. I mean, let's, if we sin more, grace abounds more, doesn't it? We indulge in more grace the more I sin. Paul said in the strongest possible terms in Romans chapter 6, verse 2, may it never be. Other times we do this when we ask God for signs. Lord, give me a sign. Help me to know your will when he has set it all down for you in his word. Oh, the word is insufficient. But this was the way of the Jews, Paul said in 1 Corinthians 1.22. The Jews demand a sign. We put God to the test. In 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 15 to 16, we're warned about taking God's word and using it in this way, of twisting it. Peter warned there that out of ignorance, some twist the scriptures not for gain, but to their own destruction. And therefore, we are learn from this passage of Scripture as well that not only will Satan tempt us to use God's love, to use His grace, to use His Word as a means to justify the lust of our flesh and to indulge them, but what we learn is that we must, that in order to resist this temptation to this sin, you must faithfully apply His Word. To resist his temptation to this sin, you must faithfully apply God's word. Notice again in the text that Jesus again quoted scripture to resist Satan. In verse 7, Jesus said to him again, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. A very, uh, a very simple answer. This comes from Deuteronomy chapter 6 verse 16. And all three times Christ quoted Scripture, He quotes from Deuteronomy. The first time, it was a demonstration of His love to the Father, His affection, that the driving impulse of His life was to do the will of God. This time, it is a demonstration of His complete wisdom. The devil would have us to understand that the Word of God is a contradictory document. Don't you understand? There are places where Scripture contradicts itself. Hasn't God promised? Hasn't God 
said. But we understand that in faithfully interpreting the word, we always interpret scripture in light of Scripture. I'm always comparing one passage with another passage. And this is what it means to handle God's Word faithfully, is that I'm, I'm trying to understand the whole counsel of God's Word. It's not just a life verse here or a, a piece of memorization work from vacation Bible school there. My work day in and day out is to understand it all and to faithfully apply it all. That's wisdom. It's never right to hold God's Word in conflict. You're not being faithful. You haven't understood it if you do that. Why? Because all Scripture comes from one mind. One author. It comes from the mind of God. And is God a contradictory being? Of course not. So we always interpret Scripture in light of Scripture. This is exactly what Christ does here. But we also have to recognize the difference between promises and precepts. Again, just because God owns the cattle on a thousand hills doesn't mean He's going to give them to you. Jesus here quotes from Deuteronomy chapter 6. And we re re remember that the book of Deuteronomy, they are, it is uh, the last words of Moses. His, his final sermons to his people as they are about to enter into the promised land. And God is giving them instruction on how they are to take the land. How they are to conduct themselves as a redeemed people in the promised land. And especially there, turn over with me to Deuteronomy chapter 6. We'll look at this together. <clears throat> Deuteronomy 6.4, of course, was one of the passages that uh, a young Jewish boy was required to remember. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Notice verse 5. You, Israel, shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. We remember this as a summary of the first table of God's Ten Commandments. Those first four laws are teaching us how to love the Lord our God with all our being. And if you move down to verse 16, you find there that this additional instruction is given. You shall not put the Lord your God to the test as you tested Him at Massah. In Exodus chapter 17, Moses was leading the people through the wilderness. And you'll, you'll remember that it was just a few chapters earlier, just a couple of chapters, that they were all singing the Lord's praises. Well, that's all fine and good. But now they're thirsty. And they're in the wilderness. And there's no water. And so what do they do? Lift their hands. Ask the Lord. Put their confidence in Him. No. They point their fingers at Moses. They accuse Him of withholding good from them. That they've been brought into the wilderness 
not as a redeemed people of God, but to die. And in Deuteronomy 6, verse 16, this second generation of believers is reminded, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Love Him. Don't test Him. Don't doubt Him. Don't give in to the quarreling nature of your spirit. You see, they doubted God's goodness when He permitted their thirst. They did not see that in their need, God was teaching them humility. Their dependence upon Him. But Christ, Christ is one who knows God's Word perfectly. He has studied it from His youth. Even as a 12-year-old boy, He is one who understood the Word of God and could teach the teachers. And he understands that in his hour of temptation, in love to his Father, he must not put Him to the test. He must put his trust in the Father, not doubting His goodness toward Him, not tempting Him, not testing His power, but leaning eminently into Him. And so we find what about Christ? That he is, a, he is qualified to be a prophet. He can proclaim God's Word. He's demonstrated His love for the Father not by quoting Scripture, but by endeavoring to understand and to apply it faithfully. And He understands that God's ordinary providence in preserving His life is no less divine than His extraordinary providence. I want you to look with me at Mark chapter 3 and verse 9. It is a temptation for us to think that the only time God intervenes is when He intervenes miraculously. We fail to recognize that God is often exercising His providence, often more often exercising His providence through the ordinary means. Notice in Mark chapter 3. Jesus there is preparing to teach the people. He has withdrawn with His disciples to the sea and a great crowd has followed them as normal. And notice in verse 9. And He told His disciples to have a boat ready for Him. Because of the crowd, lest they crush him. You see what's happening there. Jesus senses the danger that the people are gathering so tightly around him that the air is getting tight. He can't breathe. There's a potential that that the crowd is going to continue growing and growing and pressing down upon him so that he might even be injured. And so he's not expecting some miraculous intervention by God. He simply turns around to his disciples and says to them, have a boat ready. I might need to get into the boat. Someone asked me one time if if I thought it was a Christian thing to do to invest in CDs. Should we invest? Should we prepare for the future? One of the things that we learn in this temptation of Christ as we go back over to Matthew chapter 4 is that we don't throw our wet lives away flippantly. We learned in the first temptation that 
that we do entrust ourselves to the Lord. We, we don't try to guard our, our lives against all, all danger. We don't put ourselves in a bubble. We rest in the Lord. We trust Him. But here we also learn that we don't throw it away. We trust in His providence. But we don't misuse it. Some make major decisions based on revelation. A man just this week told me that he sold his house because God told him to do so. God didn't tell him to sell his house. God was gracious to him and allowed him to sell his house. But God has told you to trust in the wisdom that he has laid down in his word. Not to be foolish, not to be flippant with your life. To trust him. Don't put him to the test. It is not more spiritual if God provides a miraculous check in the mail than if you earn a wage. Both are God's provision. It is not more spiritual if God heals you miraculously than if he heals you through a Tylenol. Christian scientists, Jehovah's Witnesses, faith healers, all put God to the test. I won't take medicine because God's going to heal me. God heals you through medicine. Do not put the Lord to the test. In ignorance, many seem to believe that God only works one way. But the Lord shows... How do we prevent from, from applying this to ourselves, from misunderstanding God's providence? Well, I understand the whole work of God's word. And I won't put him to the test. You will overcome the temptations of Satan only when you faithfully apply his word. When you understand it completely. And God is showing you here, Christian, in the work of Christ. That He provides for you faithfully. That He protects you. But that this protection is not only supernatural. It is also through the natural. And we don't put Him to the test by living our lives in an overly zealously risky way. By refusing medicine. By making His grace and His love an excuse for sin. But we live in wisdom by applying His Word, the whole counsel of it, faithfully in our lives. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank You that You've given us Your whole counsel. And that through the work of the Holy Spirit, it is sufficient for us to, to live faithfully before You and Father, we ask that you would give us wisdom, that we might live as Christ lived, faithfully before you, not always looking for some miraculous outcome, not living our lives in a way that denies your ordinary providence. But recognize that in everyday ways, sometimes above providence, sometimes above the, the means of nature, but often within them and through them and under them, 
you are protecting your people and delivering them. We especially ask, Father, for power to resist Satan when he tempts us to throw our lives away needlessly. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.